I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. And this is The Politics of Everything, a podcast about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. We're talking today about polarization, where it comes from, why it's so entrenched in the United States, and what can be done about it. Later in the show, we check in with longtime campaign reporter Walter Shapiro, who has written a story about the 1918 Spanish flu and how American newspapers covered it up at the time. This is The Politics of Everything. We're joined today by one of our colleagues, Asita Wonevu, a staff writer at The New Republic. He has a piece in our June issue about polarization. It's a review of Ezra Klein's new book, Why We're Polarized, and an essay more broadly on that phenomenon. Asita, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, Asita. So this subject of polarization has been a theme for a very long time in discussions of American politics, and your piece gets into that very long history, but you also talk about it specifically in the context of the coronavirus. So I decided to review Ezra's book before the coronavirus crisis uh, even happened. It was something people were talking about as a kind of really important text in understanding this political moment and, and the divide we've seen emerge in American politics over the past 20 years. I think that the coronavirus crisis has illustrated a lot of the things the client talks about. I mean, we saw very early on that there was a difference in the way that Democrats and Republicans were processing information about the crisis. Republicans were more skeptical. Democrats were doing more to directly change their own lives, to make themselves less at risk at contracting the virus. I think that there's been a little bit of evidence that those kinds of effects have diminished somewhat, but there's still very clearly a difference in the way that Democrats and Republicans are understanding what's going on and the extent to which they've put their trust in, in the administration to offer good guidance and accurate information about everything. Right. And um, that seems to get to the point of this larger question of how dangerous is polarization? How bad is it for American politics? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's bad. I mean, the, the ideal situation would be everybody, no matter what party you're in, you know, comes together and sings kumbaya and passes policies <laughs> that make sense and work for everybody. And that would be wonderful. Um, that has never been the political system we've had in America. We're in, I think, I, I can't remember if it's the fourth or fifth iteration of what political scientists call the party system, uh, where each political era has its own kind of alignment of power between the Democratic and Republican parties or the parties that preceded them. Um, and, you know, over the past half century or so, uh, we were in this place after World War II where there was a good amount of bipartisanship on a number of important issues uh, that kind of eroded as demographic changes took hold. Um, people flowed out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party primarily because of the Democratic Party's stance on civil rights and racial issues. There were other cultural issues that were involved in that as well. Um, and so now we're at a point, which I think Klein describes pretty well, where the parties aren't just ideologically different and, and more ideologically pure on either side, but also they represent different demographic constituencies and people's identities are sort of caught up in how they, what party they identify with. And so none of that is really great in, in the way that you would ideally construct a political system. Is his argument that this American polarization, does he believe it's inevitable, a result of our institutions as they were designed? What is his explanation for the cause of this identity consuming everything? Klein, for the most part, spends most of the book 
talking a surprising amount about uh, was basically biological determinism. He reviews a lot of studies that examine the ways in which people began to identify with groups and the strength of that identification. And, and that research is interesting and compelling in some ways, but I don't think it does as much to explain our political situation as he seems to believe. So the idea that he's talking about there is almost that there are not only two sides, but two sides that are deeply defined by separate cultures, patterns of consumption, mm -hmm. lifestyles. So basically there are kinds of people, he says, according to studies, who are really open to new experiences. Uh, they like trying new foods. They like learning new languages and living in diverse places. And there are people who are more closed to those kinds of experiences. And he cites research that says that those things kind of track pretty predictably are you know, familiar political divides. Like people who are close to new experiences tend to be more conservative. People who are open to them, according to the studies, tend to be more liberal. But I think that there are exceptions to this that are, come very easily to mind. I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that one of the things that makes it more complicated is that there's a kind of weird, I think, misunderstanding of causality If you live in a city, if you grow up in a city, and that's just where you were born, and you're exposed to different cultures, and you know maybe you learn a different language, and then you say in a poll years later that those are the kinds of places you prefer to live in, it's not because necessarily there is some biological wiring in your brain that makes you believe that. It's a product of your particular circumstances and the way that you've come up. Yeah, like if we're polling people, do you prefer to live in a big open space without very many people around or do you prefer to live somewhere walkable? Uh, the answers don't reflect a sort of psychological-based truth about how people are made up. They, they reflect the fact that a ton of people grew up in environments we specifically designed. Like we designed right. these environments. We made political choices. And right, we're, right, right. we're living with the results of those choices, not innate human nature. Right, right. And so if you adopt this kind of opposite view that it is kind of psychologically or biologically hardwired, I don't know how you can even have a productive discussion about ending polarization, given <laughs> that, you know, it, there's not much that you can do about the way the human brain is designed if you believe that the answers are in there. One other thing I should say about limitations of this point of view, Klein's book is basically entirely about politics in the United States, uh, but human beings are doing politics in other countries, too. And the political situation in most countries doesn't really look like ours at all. You don't see this kind of deep bifurcation between war and political camps. Obviously, people have bitter political fights, sure, but it's much more common in Europe, say, to have these kinds of multi-party coalitions where different parties are working together. People don't identify as tightly with their particular party is somebody in the United States might say, well, I'm a Democrat and that means a whole lot to me, or I'm a Republican, that means a whole lot to me. There's a very different kind of politics happening here. I think that the other half of what you're saying about how other democracies work is that the ideological sorting that Klein, I think, blames for the part of the growth of polarization happened in those places a hundred years ago, too. I mean, they yeah. have much clearer ideological sorting, especially in many of the Western democracies where they will have, you know, a labor party, a Christian democratic party, like those places, even if the differences are not so directly tied to identity, the sort of fact of which class of people a party stand for has been much clearer than it was in the past in the U.S. And yet they are not creating the same division that our system is creating, right? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the Democratic Party is and the Republican parties are very ideologically watery compared to what <laughs> exists um, in major parties elsewhere. And yet, paradoxically, you have this very, very intense identification and this sort of intense moral weight people attach to belong to one or the other. Um, there's obviously an explanation for polarization that is fairly one-directional and <laughs> caused by basically the conservative movement working primarily on its own base. And mm -hmm. I think what is interesting is that it is made up almost entirely of cosmopolitans who are fairly open to experience. I always think about the example of Eric Erickson, a very prominent right-winger, who sort of play-acts at being a complete hick. And what he does is interesting because he play-acts at being a person who was not open to new experience. And at back in Gawker, we had this wonderful story we had where uh, Eric Erickson had said that uh, when he was growing up, his parents didn't eat Asian food on Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah, and yeah. it was just a dumb, like it was, that is the sort of thing you say when you're trying to tell people, I grew up closed-minded, conservative, traditional, and like a little racist. And uh, we had a reporter, Keenan Trotter, call Erickson's mother, who said she had never even heard of that. She thought we were making it up to smear him. But that's what I mean. Like, Eric Erickson grew up in Dubai. He attended the American School of Dubai for high school. Uh, he's a person who was a cosmopolitan, has always been a cosmopolitan. And his job in the conservative media is to inflame the reactionary tendencies of people who say into surveys that they are closed to new experience. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good example. I mean, it's just very difficult to even... You know, aside from the responses somebody might give to a particular survey in a study, it's just very hard to even categorize people properly in this way. So, like, think about Donald Trump, for instance. Trump is famously somebody who is stuck in certain ways. He likes his steak. Well done. He's probably not out there trying a lot of new foods. Hopeless with languages, I imagine. Uh, and yet, you know, this is a guy who spent the late 70s, early 80s in Studio 54. <laughs> he's traveled a lot. He's, he's, he's you know, trying to build up this international real estate empire. Uh, he's dealt with people from other countries, lived in New York City, famously New Yorker. So what do you call him? What kind of person is he in that kind of scheme? People are very complicated on these questions, and, and yet we have in this country a very kind of clean bifurcation in which each party has managed to wrap up a lot of different kinds of people inside their coalition. And so there's also a large group of people who want nothing to do with any of this. Um, as you write about in your piece, we tend to think of polarization as being a clear split between two groups. Um, and we often don't talk about a large, very important constituency in the middle, which is independent voters. Yeah, I think that's really important. And over the past 10 years, we've seen this real rise in number of people who identify with neither party. I think that the supposition whenever people talk about independence is, well, these are people who are so disgusted with politics that they don't like anybody. And they're really, you know, pining for a kind of third option that's like down the middle. And that's where real political hope and opportunity lies. This is the basis of every take that's ever been written about a third party run. Reality is that most of these people do ultimately vote pretty consistently for either the Democratic or Republican Party. They just don't want to call themselves Democrats or Republicans because there's been this kind of, you know, stigma attached to being a partisan. And they like this idea of, you know, everybody coming together and not identifying so much with the party. 
And I think that's a pretty weird wrinkle in the kind of picture Klein is trying to paint. If it is the case that people are powerfully attracted to groups to the extent that they really, really think identifying with them is important, and we see that on a political level with some partisans, why is it the case that a lot of people who always vote for Democrats or always vote for Republicans aren't willing to call themselves Democrats or Republicans? The reason why people are interested in hearing Klein talk about polarization is that they're worried about it. Like a lot of Americans who really, really dislike this state of affairs, and they're reflected, I think, often in that kind of independent tendency. You know what I just thought? It's only just occurred to me. There's, there, there's no market for this book on the right. This book exists to be sold to yeah. liberals, right? Yeah, <laughs> like no, exactly. <laughs> like there's, I mean, I don't know. It really speaks to this strong tendency against politics itself that, again, is in our polarized time, only one side feels. I think in general, the fact that people like Klein and others have spent the past several years really, really talking about polarization, you know, in places like The Atlantic, places like The New York Times, to an audience of, you know, some conservatives, but I think predominantly liberals, reflects the extent to which um, political comedy at C-O-M-I-T-Y, <laughs> political comedy, is, is a really, really foundational part of the way that we kind of understand how politics is supposed to work. Like, yes, the Democrats and Republicans are further apart ideologically than ever before. Yes, people are voting more and more consistently for each party. Um, but at the same time, there's this real sense among people that this isn't really the way it ought to be. And there's this real discomfort about it that he doesn't really talk about. If it's the case that we are really wired to belong to a particular group, why is there so much reluctance on the part of smart, politically engaged people to fully succumb to that? And I think ultimately, in terms of the solutions that he's offering, this idea of getting rid of the Electoral College or really fundamentally altering the Senate or doing something about gerrymandering, all of this stuff, the way to actually get that stuff done <laughs> is to kind of say straight up to the American people, look, you know, if you're concerned about polarization, you have to kind of at least temporarily ditch this bipartisan ideal and understand that the way to actually improve the American political system is to do things that are going to be very radical and very divisive and very one-sided. And that is the way we're going to get polarization. It's not going to be by being nicer to each other in our communities. It's not going to be a product of not having a Twitter account. <laughs> uh, Klein offers us another solution, getting really involved in local politics. I don't know how somebody can really believe that like local politics and state yeah. politics are inherently less divisive than national politics. I think there are a lot of issues where that's clearly not true at all. He can go to a community board meeting in my neighborhood sometime and figure out if that's true or not. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, I, th I think that there's, there's this very strong and potent bipartisan ideal that sits at odds with the kinds of trends that Klein is describing and also stands as a real obstacle to improving the system in any way. Yeah. People have a tendency to use polarization interchangeably with dysfunctional. And a yeah. book that is like why we're dysfunctional would, I think, have a different diagnosis. And I, I think that's the more important question. They're not interchangeable concepts. We are not necessarily dysfunctional because we're polarized, in my opinion, at least. And I think you are correct that the way forward will necessarily involve like what will appear to many people to be a shocking amount of additional polarization. 
Right. And I think there's also a common misconception about polarization, which I think Klein talks about, which is the idea that a more polarized public is somehow more extreme, that it's actually not about being more extreme or more ideologically sorted, but the way people relate to that sorting. There's a difference between being extreme and being a kind of polarized partisan. We were far less polarized when there were a lot of people okay with segregation and not letting women vote and not letting gay people marry or, you know, exist in public. That was a less polarized political environment with views that people would now consider extreme dominating American politics. So I think there's, there's a difference there and a nuance I think most people are less careful than Klein in, in describing. Yeah, and I think he also mentions that in earlier era, we were seeing political assassinations, uh, the exactly. terrorism, right. like that, that is right. more extreme. Um, and to go back to the process you talk about in the 1950s of this moment when people actually wanted more polarization, having that ideological sorting where you actually have a real choice between the Republicans' agenda and the Democrats' agenda, that is not a bad thing. Like, there should be a difference between the two parties when you cast your vote. Right, right. The parties were so kind of ideologically mixed that you didn't have the kind of clear implications that people understand now. Um, and I think that having that clear division is something that, frankly, facilitates political participation. Like, you know what it means to be a Democrat and Republican. It's very clear and intelligible. And so you know, even if you haven't, you've never heard of a candidate that D or that R next to their name gives you some sense of an idea of what they're going to do in office. You talk, Asida, about a, a series of things one could do to break the stranglehold the Republicans have on many branches of government. It seems, though, like the kind of core of your argument there is not that these kinds of reforms would change a core group of people's minds, but certainly that they would force Republicans or conservatives to appeal to a wider base, so they wouldn't be able to stay in government with just a very narrow, activated base. They would actually have to have a broader appeal in the way that Democrats have to. You're never going to get rid of conservatives, right? Like There will always be a conservative element in this country. There always has been. What you can do is make it so that the Republican Party as a political institution has to appeal to, as you said, a broader swath of the American public, not just the most conservative people in the country, in order to win Election. So I think that that's something that would help immensely in mitigating you know, the impacts of our political divide and, and, and shaping our politics in, in a better way. And he goes through, over the course of the book, certain questions where there is a clear like partisan difference, but the difference that he'll note is a little bit stronger or a lot stronger on the Republican side. Democrats are generally, if you look at Pew's data, more interested in bipartisanship and more interested in compromise than Republicans are. Republicans tend to be less worried about things like whether you're rude in your political messaging and the way you characterize your opponents. But, you know, I, I think, again, reflecting the intended audience of this book, it's always presented as the Republican and Republican parties are both kind of equally subject to these dynamics, and it's a problem that exists on both sides. We'll acknowledge the Republican Party has made things worse in certain ways. There's a chapter or two in the book devoted to that. But it's a problem that kind of presents as, you know, this is this is just a kind of human being problem and not uh, something that should be inherently tied to the political strategy of a particular party necessarily. Right. It's interesting that if we think about this 
just through that lens of evolutionary psychology, it's really an individual response. It's really the individual being inherently predisposed to being polarized. And that really underplays the extent to which the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are very complex, powerful institutions with strategies and agendas. And um, they take part in these dynamics and to, to a greater or lesser extent, reinforce them and try to use them to their advantage when they can. Uh, Frankly, I think if we want to enact some of these reforms that would improve the system, the Democratic Party probably has to lean a bit more into group identity to sort of marshal its base in support of doing the things that would actually improve the system, make it less polarized. Again, I think the, the way out of this, if there is a way out of this institutionally, is through it, like embrace partisanship uh, in order to diminish the impact of partisanship down the road. The Republicans represent, as we all sort of dance around in these conversations, they represent basically one unified demographic group. And Mm -hmm. and Democrats actually represent a coalition with not just different ideas, but different material needs and completely different sort of ideas about how to do politics, I think. So there's this concept that Klein talks about in the book. It describes as identity stacking. And it's, it's a process through which people have become very, very sort of personally identified with the parties. So what he says is, you know, at this point, if you are a Democrat or a Republican, a slight against you or being defeated in an election isn't just a matter of your party losing, but your party is also intrinsically connected to your identity as a white man or a black woman or an LGBT person. You know, these are all interwoven to the point where if you activate one particular political identity in an election or in your reporting or in your activism, you're also kind of speaking to the rest of the identities that people hold. This is why demographic anxiety is that a segment of the population, you know, white people, predominantly male people, are feeling have had so much of an influence on Republican politics. It's not just, I think, the bare numbers and the fact that they represent a large part of their coalition, but there's a way in which elections now and their consequences kind of speak directly to who people are on a more fundamental level, at least as they understand their own identities. I have to say, like, worrying about worrying about polarization in and of itself does seem like an elite debate in the sense that we're talking about a Republican base that is primarily financially secure and feels a sort of sense of cultural loss when the other side wins. And the people we're discussing on the liberal side, I feel like, are almost, when we're talking about the people who feel most personally identified with the Democratic Party, we're not talking about the people whose lives will be the most materially harmed by the other side winning, I don't think. I really do think Klein is addressing this for, like, again, a caricature of white liberalism. Uh, And for them, it is a sort of psychological thing. (laughs) But that's not actually what politics is about. Politics is about how we dole out resources and power. I mean, the way that I've sort of seen this conversation, the talk about polarization we've seen over the past decade or so, is that polarization is the new deficits, Right. It's a thing that, quote unquote, smart people, wonks, people who write for The Atlantic, you know, the people in that kind of space now spend a lot of their time talking about. And I think that it performs the same basic function. Like one of the reasons why deficits were such a part of discourse for so long, apart from the kind of pernicious, this is how you undermine the welfare state kind of reasons, 
is that it was an issue that allowed you to say, look, like no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, this is a grand social problem. It's really nobody's fault in particular. It's everybody's fault. <laughs> and I'm being magnanimous and intelligent in telling you this. And you have this rhetoric of responsibility and discipline kind of attached to it as well. Like polarization is not occupying that same kind of discursive space and appeals to the same kinds of people. Thankfully, I don't know that it's going to have that much of a practical impact on literal legislation. It would be great, you know, if people took on the challenge of eliminating the electoral college and these kinds of things. That would be good, frankly, if, if this became a political issue in the way the deficits were, I think you'd find much less productive solutions being advanced than those kinds of things. <laughs> but anyway, like I, I, I think that there's a kind of detached person who likes thinking about politics in abstract terms and likes clucking at people who are very politically passionate and engaged and believing themselves to be kind of above all of that, who's attracted to certain political conversations. And I think that polarization is kind of the natural space for those people. Well, thank you so much, Asida, for talking to us about this. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me. have Walter Shapiro joining us remotely, as we all are today, to talk about a story he wrote for The New Republic about the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic and the unfortunate history of how the press covers or sometimes doesn't cover public health disasters. Walter, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Hi, Walter. Hello, Laura. Walter, you read a bunch of old newspapers from 1918. You were looking for how the Spanish flu, which killed so, so many people was being covered at the time. 675,000 people died from the influenza epidemic in 1918-1919 in the United States, which in terms of population would be over 2 million dying today. And so you went looking for the evidence of that happening in the newspapers. The newspapers were obviously, this is before television, this was how people got their news. This was, this was before radio. Before radio. It was either newspaper or rumor. There was nothing else. <laughs> so, I mean, tell me what you found. Well, first of all, what I did to just get a sense of it is I picked a random day, October 4th, 1918, Friday, because I knew that October 1918 was the peak of the epidemic. And I picked three cities that were deeply afflicted, uh, which was Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Uh, let me start off with the sainted New York Times. At a point when 100 people died in New York and nearly 1,000 cases were reported on the prior day, October 3rd, you know where the New York Times played the influenza epidemic? On page 24 of a 24-page newspaper. Wow. Here are just a few of the big stories that you got to before you learned about the epidemic in all the news that's fit to print. John Barrymore opened in Tolstoy's tragedy, The Living Corpse. Oh, and my favorite, the wedding announcements. <laughs> uh, Miss Morgan Bride of Lieutenant J.M. Everts. And the wedding took place at the country estate of the bride's parents at Wheatley Hill, Long Island. Wow. <laughs> Let me explain what was going on. This was about six weeks away from the end of World War I. 
And while there was very little formal censorship in the United States, there was de facto censorship, self-censorship, a sense that anything that undermines the war effort uh, should be frowned upon. And as a result, news of the influenza epidemic was deliberately downplayed by major newspapers not to induce panic. The result was political leaders were very, very slow to react. For example, Philadelphia in September 28 had a 250,000 people turn out for um, a Liberty Bond parade. And seeing the pictures of that parade in the Philadelphia papers, it was chilling. There were 15 deep. And as a result, Philadelphia became the epicenter of the epidemic. One of the things I really like about your story is that you reproduced the front pages of the Evening Public Ledger, Philadelphia, and of, I think, the Boston Globe. Um, And you get a sense of these stories, the war stories that were on everyone's minds. Like there's this lovely headline, Kaiser prepares to submit early offer of peace. And then there's this really intriguing headline about the editors of a Lithuanian socialist newspaper being locked up for sedition. There's a very clear attempt to sort of unite the country to get to the end of this war. And you can really see why Spanish flu didn't make it onto these front pages. The second lead in almost all every newspaper I looked at was not influenza, not the grip as it was called then. It was the war bond drive. The liberty bond drive was flagging a little. And therefore, all the patriotic newspapers had page one articles about Treasury Secretary McAdoo really being concerned that their region was being let down. It was the equivalent of Donald Trump's obsession with the stock market as the measure of America. It was, so what if people are dying of this horrible influenza? The important thing is Boston should not be a city of slackers when it comes to buying war bonds. Well, what's funny is the Spanish flu, like we are still referring to it this day as the Spanish flu. Um, And there's not the... It was actually the Kansas flu. Right. As near as they can reconstruct it, the flu first appeared not in Wuhan, but in Kansas and was sent to Europe in about April or May of 1918 with the Doughboys going to war. And it then spread through Europe And all of the European nations were under wartime censorship, even more onerous than the United States. So the only place that reported honestly on the flu was Spain, because Spain was neutral and not on the war. And therefore, it got, through a terrible misnomer, got being known as the Spanish flu. Oh, yeah, that's what you get for honesty in reporting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I noticed. (laughs) Um, I do think it's interesting... Because people had to know, despite the censorship, they had to, you know, if you lived in Philadelphia, you knew people were dying. It all, you almost wonder, like, wh- what did the cover-up achieve? Oh, it, was, it achieved absolutely nothing, which is the whole problem with most cover-ups. To a large extent, what the failure of coverage did is basically give power to local officials to do nothing. And speaking of doing nothing... As near as anyone can find out, Woodrow Wilson, president, had never uttered the word influenza, Spanish flu, or even discussed it in the fall of 1918. 
Well, one of the things that's notable about this coverage is that to some extent, the cover-up was successful. When we learn about the First World War and when we talk about it, it's very rare that you'll hear someone emphasize the impact of the Spanish flu on the outcome of the war um, or on the years after the war and the consequences people lived with. I actually went back through the New Republic's archives looking for how the magazine may have written about Spanish flu, given that we were founded in 1914. And the word influenza doesn't even appear in the magazine until 1928. So it didn't enter the political discourse in the way that you would think such a momentous epidemic would. Another example is I went to my bookshelf um, and took down two different biographies of Wilson and looked in the index and there were no references in either. And remember, Washington under the progressive era actually had real powers. The Food and Drug Administration in particular could have taken a major step. The only effort that seems to have been made in Washington was the then Surgeon General canceled a draft call for October of 1918 because of the danger. So obviously one thing that's different now is not just that we have a president who's actually going on television and talking about this and often saying things that are not true, but there's also a whole culture of misinformation surrounding Trump and the right more generally. So it seems that even though it's harder to actually cover up an epidemic with a conspiracy of silence, it's also hard to establish the facts of what's happening when you have so much other media actively contradicting it. Well, I'm a little dubious on that one, Laura, just because I think nothing that Trump and the Republicans are doing is working in a political sense. For example, all the denialism in the world can come out of the White House, but right now there is a raging epidemic. So it is really hard to hide this in 2020, no matter what is coming out of the White House, no matter what the line is of Fox News on a particular day. I was thinking, so we're looking at the political implications of a cover-up and of a government that will try and deny the spread of a pandemic through a society. One question I had was, how good newspapers ever really can be at looking at that question. Because in a campaign year, you have a lot of political reporters, campaign reporters like yourself, in fact, who are assigned to follow that horse race and to look very carefully at how the candidates are reaching out to different constituencies and everything they're doing on the campaign trail. And suddenly when you get something like this, all eyes are on the disease and you have to kind of pivot to suddenly being a public health expert. No, it's very much true. And what I've been advertising, I'm not an epidemiologist, nor do I play one on TV. It's very hard to switch gears, but it also captures something important about politics. There are some things that are just unknowable. And in the spring, it is really hard to see how an unforeseen horrible tragedy like this can affect November because it's beyond our imagination. Anyone who thinks they can figure out how this will play out doesn't know how it's going to play out just by the definition of their arrogance. Yeah, we were kind of joking about this earlier, but there is a certain kind of political reporter who exactly can't deal with an unprecedented situation just because of the fact that they have to sort of act as if they know everything and know how everything will play. But a virus does not have... Uh, sources close to it to tell you what it's planning to do. 
<laughs> like you can't, uh, <laughs> the virus can't leak its intentions. Um, no, uh, that's such a good metaphor, such a good trope. <laughs> I, I was trying to extend it and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can work on that for the next one, maybe. We can, okay. we can continue going on that. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, Walter. It was great talking to you. Oh, it's always fun. This is the politics of everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take advantage of the New Republic's Stuck at Home special offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. It's available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.